Last year, the omnivore's dilemma stirred a national dialogue on what's for dinner. Author Michael Pollan has noted that the way we eat represents our most profound engagement with the natural world. In the book, Mr. Pollan took an in-depth look at four possible routes by which food may reach our table. Meals were analyzed in fast food, organic and grass-fed foodstuffs, and finally, a personally gathered meal. Last fall, Michael Pollan's writing was central to a dozen discussions convened at UC Davis's annual Campus Community Book Project. And this fall, The Omnivore's Dilemma is out in paperback. We caught up with Michael Pollan at his home in the Bay Area, where he teaches journalism at UC Berkeley. Michael Pollan, welcome to Radio Parallax. Hey, thanks a lot. Good to be here, Dick. Can we start with the, the, this, this bizarre fact of agricultural life in America that underlies a lot of our uh, really economic distortions in the food chain? The price of corn is kept so low that almost everything in our food chain is really recycled corn. I have an article from June of last year showing how a man in Connecticut was simply burning corn in his furnace at home and estimates he could pay for the stove in just a few years so cheap are corn kernels. Can we start with this bizarre low price of American corn? Well, I hadn't heard that story, but uh, it makes perfect sense. Basically, corn for most of the last 30 years has been uh, dirt cheap because we pay farmers to grow as much of it as they possibly can uh, through our subsidy system. Actually, at the moment, the price of corn has spiked. It's actually very high right now by historic levels because of the ethanol boom. But by and large, it's one of the five commodities that the government supports through subsidies, and as a result, farmers are encouraged to overproduce. And when you overproduce anything, the price collapses. And so corn and soybeans also, which is kind of the companion plant to corn in most uh, of the, the Midwestern fields where corn is grown, become cheap enough that you can basically turn them into industrial raw materials. You know, when you can buy a bushel of corn for less than two bucks, and that's a lot of corn, by the way. A bushel is 56 pounds of kernels. Wow. You can use it to heat your house. You can use it to feed animals and turn it into protein. You can break it down and turn it into um, things like high-fructose corn syrup and any number of uh, food additives, ascorbic acid, xanthan gum. I mean, if you go through the list of your average high-tech product of food science, a Twinkie, say, uh, or a chicken McNugget, you will find corn upon corn upon corn, and soybeans, and some wheat, because these are uh, just big, fat calories that food science can break down and reassemble in any, any one of myriad processed food products. Corn and soybeans are the building blocks of the fast food nation. All the meat is, is, comes from corn and soy, uh, and most of the processed food, all the added fat and all the added sugar. I think people would be shocked to realize how much corn they're drinking in soft drinks. Yeah, well, when you drink a Coca-Cola, you're, you're getting, you know, 30 grams or so of uh, corn sweetener, several bushels right there, and it has become the, the default sweetener in America. You know, we are the people of corn. You know, the Mexicans always call themselves that, uh, the people of corn, because they've always had this appreciation that corn was the staple of their diet and, and actually, you know, made up their flesh. But in fact, North Americans eat more corn even than Mexicans, who still sweeten their soft drinks with uh, cane sugar and don't feed corn to their animals as a rule. But we are the people of corn. About 20 years ago, I drove across Iowa, and at that time, you know, Iowa looked like my picture from childhood of what a farm uh, should look like or farm should look like. I, I was surprised to read in your book that uh, thanks to Fritz Haber and, and the man that invented... Uh, the way we can make nitrogen fertilizer from the air and, and, and the free availability of it after World War II, 
that out in Iowa, farms no longer really mix animals with cornfields as they used to, and that really the whole look of the countryside and the corn belt has changed and as animals have moved on to feedlots. Yeah, well, you know, Fritz Haber's invention, this whole, this whole figuring out of how to take nitrogen from the air, where it's this inert gas, you know, it's 80% of the atmosphere, and turn it into ammonium nitrate, this fertilizer, has probably had as radical effect on the way we live in our environment as any other invention of the 20th century. And the reason is, just as you say, that you no longer had to produce fertility locally on your farm. And when you did, you would have animals around, and they would consume the crop waste, and they'd give you manure, and you had this kind of nice, tight nutrient cycle. But when you could buy fertility in a bag, suddenly then you were freed up to just grow whatever whatever you wanted. And if that was corn and soybeans, you could forget everything else. So... Haber's invention of synthetic fertilizer really is what drives us to these monocultures. And when you go to Iowa today, it's kind of stunning um, how it looks. For most of the year, the land is black because nobody has pastures anymore because they don't need animals anymore. So they basically leave the soil naked until the corn or soybean gets planted, uh, which doesn't really happen until late April, early May, and then it's out of the ground by October, and the rest of the year... Iowa is just completely a black landscape. You know, it used to be that in a place like Iowa, there were 14 or 15 crops on every farm because you needed to rotate to rebuild fertility. But Haber, Haber, you know, ended that practice. He is really the reason or the precondition for industrialized agriculture and the fact, the astounding fact, that one farmer in America can now feed 126 Americans. There are some people who claim that uh, that our current system of industrialized agriculture is really the only economic way to provide food for the masses. But you have this great quote uh, from your Mother Jones article in June of '06 from your the farmer you worked with, Joe Salatin. He said when he's asked about the higher price of of his foods, he tells people it's actually the cheapest food you can buy because society's not bearing the cost of water pollution, antibiotic resistant, foodborne illness, subsidized oil, water, etc. And that and that uh, cheap food's really not so cheap when you factor in the hidden costs. Yeah, I think he's absolutely right. I think we're fooled. When we see that 99-cent hamburger at McDonald's, it, it looks cheap, and at the register it is cheap, but there is a price to pay. Believe me, if you follow that hamburger back to the feedlots, as I did when, in writing the book, you realize what a cost to the environment, what a cost to public health in the form of uh, antibiotic resistance, in the form of all the effects of you know hormones in the food supply, in the feedlot pollution, the uh, and the subsidies from the government to make the corn cheap enough so that it can be fed to the animals in those quantities on the feedlots. Our food is cheap, yet our health care is expensive, and there is a connection between the two. Since 1960, our health care costs have soared from 5% of national income to 16%. In the same period, the percentage of our income we spend on food has plummeted from 18% to under 10%. So you see those two arrows have crossed. And it is undeniable that if we would spend a little more on food that was healthy and wholesome and, and less polluting, we could spend a lot less on health care. So it's a, it's a false economy to buy cheap food very often, and as a society, you know, even for the individual, but for a society, certainly. If we spent more on food, we could, we could definitely reduce our health care costs. I don't want to necessarily belabor the point, but as a physician, I am scandalized by how we use antibiotics in animal feed because cattle, chickens, and even salmon uh, obviously don't eat corn in their normal diet and that uh, they don't live in these, uh, these huge enclosures. So I think that, you know, doctors don't realize that here out there trying to conserve antibiotics so they may remain useful, and yet 
Two-thirds of the antibiotics in America go right into animal feed. I think that shocks a lot of people. And it's not necessary. I mean, animals did fine without antibiotics for millions of years. The only reason they need them, as you suggest, is we grow them under conditions where they're going to get sick because we grow huge numbers of genetically almost identical animals in very close quarters, and the only way you can protect them is with antibiotics. And the other reason we do it is because antibiotics, for mysterious reasons, seem to promote growth in certain animals. So it's used to just kind of shave a few days off the, uh, the lifespan of these animals. But it's an enormous squandering of what is a public good. I mean, the fact that an antibiotic works, as you know as a doctor, there are only so many antibiotics, and it's turning out to be hard to find new ones, to waste those just so we could shave a few pennies off the price of our, our food is just criminal. We're speaking with Michael Pollan, the author of The Omnivore's Dilemma. Something else I think that, that would shock a lot of people, it certainly shocked uh, me when I read uh, The Omnivore's Dilemma, was that when you sit down and calculate the number of calories that are burned in fossil fuels to get you the food that you eat, you get some really eye-popping numbers. Hawaiian pineapple, I noted, uh, for example, 2.8 gallons of gasoline to fly it to market. So there's been a movement uh, that you've, you've been really, I think, spearheading to eat local food. Energy is, is not something people associate with food instantly. When we think about using energy or uh, climate change, we automatically think about heating our houses and driving our cars. But in fact, the food system is responsible for um, 20% of the fossil fuel that we're burning and an enormous amount of the greenhouse gases we release as a result. Our food system basically burns up 10 calories of fossil fuel for every one calorie of food energy it produces. It used to be that for every one calorie of fossil fuel in agriculture, we got two calories of food. And that's the way it's supposed to work. The energy is supposed to come from the sun. It's supposed to be the free lunch, you know, on this planet. It's solar energy. And it does work that way in nature. But for industry, that just isn't good enough. Because of the desire for speed and cheapness, we discovered, and, and the Haber process was part of that, because that is a fossil fuel process, to fix nitrogen as fertilizer, that we basically took this solar system of producing food and we put it on the uh, on fossil fuel. We turned the, the, the steer and the, and the feedlot is a, is a gas guzzler at this point. It takes so much fossil fuel to grow that meat because it takes so much fossil fuel to grow the corn and to move it around the country and dry it and crush it. That cow would be very happy out on grass and the grass food chain is still a solar food chain, if you think about it, because the, the sun is, is, is nourishing the grass, and the grass is nourishing the ruminant, and the ruminant is nourishing us. I mean, that's the way it should work. But no, instead, we, we take that cow and we turn it into just another fossil fuel guzzler. You know, something really resonates with me about, about local food. I grew up in Fremont, just down the BART line from, from where you are in Berkeley. Uh, my grandfather was an apricot farmer. We had, uh, we had strawberry fields behind us. It's all been buried under urban sprawl, and I know this is not a major thrust to your book, but for me it holds out hope that if people would eat more fresh local food, it could keep farmers operating in the region. Well, it is part of the book in that I, you know, I, I make a, a very strong case, I think, for the, all the benefits of buying your food locally. I mean, it, it works on so many levels. There is the health benefit of eating you know, fresh, wholesome food that has just been picked at the peak of its nutritional quality. There is, though, the benefit to the landscape, because... There's this wonderful bumper sticker in Europe called Eat Your View. <laughs> if you like that view, if you like what you know, the countryside looks like uh, with farms on it and without lots of houses, the only way to keep that view going is to eat the food that comes off that land. 
Otherwise, it's going to go to the highest bidder, and that's going to be a real estate developer. So one of the reasons to eat local is to help withstand the sprawl uh, of the countryside. There are a lot of efforts to do that going on in California, and, and in some places it's had a great deal of success, but it's very hard for farmers to resist the threat of sprawl and the demand, say, for water, you know, from new developments that, you know, gradually we're seeing the water in California being diverted from agriculture to houses. And the Central Valley is, you know, is growing more houses now than crops. And that's really a very alarming trend because the Central Valley of California is the vegetable basket and fruit basket for most of America. And if the houses take over from the the farms here, uh, America will not be producing its own produce. It will all move south of the border. And I, for a whole host of reasons, I think that that would really be unfortunate. So whatever we can do to support farmers uh, close to home uh, has enormous benefits. You know, there's the benefits of keeping farmers in your community. Farmers are great sources of wisdom locally. Having lived in a rural town before and having farmers on the on the wetlands commission and on the zoning board, I mean, they they know things about about the local land that's incredibly valuable. And to lose that knowledge, too, just seems like a, a, a shame. And to lose what farmers contribute to a culture. So there's much at stake. It's, 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 it's your health. It's the health of the, of the land. It's the health of the community. And uh, local food, buying local food is a win-win. And, um, you know, the only strike against it is it's often more expensive. But we really have to get around the fact that we're not paying the true cost of food. And we need to start doing that. Well, of course, Davis has had a farmer's market for decades. I know you've enrolled in various programs where people can, can get local uh, produce, depending on what's what's in season. People have pointed out that in California, we have a tremendous variety of foods locally, really possibly unique in the world. Uh, is the movement to eat locally growing in places like Iowa, where they don't have quite the variety? Yeah. You know, it's very easy to do local food here in many ways, although the, the price of land is really the, the limiting factor. Um, but we, you know, we have, I, my, my farmer's market is open 50 weeks a year, and there, there, you know, there's got to be 10 CSAs to choose from here in Berkeley, and and in Davis, you guys are, you know, you you pioneered the local food movement there. But what I find traveling around the country over the last year or two is that local food is resurging everywhere. Even in Iowa, there is a much greater emphasis on growing locally. Uh, the farmer that I profile in the book, there's a corn farmer there who was just doing corn and beans, basically. He's now he's doing some chickens. He's pasturing chickens for local consumption. Farmers markets are the fastest growing segment of the food economy. They've doubled twice in the last 10 years. There, there are now nearly 5,000 farmers markets in, in America. So it's not just a California phenomenon. Even in Burlington, Vermont, not the most propitious place to be growing produce, there is a, a large community um, agriculture enterprise called Intervale that's now providing 10%, this is all year long, 10% of the produce that's consumed in Burlington. So um, we are moving back to uh, a local food economy in fits and starts, and there are enormous pressures against it, uh, land prices being an important one. And there are new people, get, you know, people are getting into farming. The number of farmers in America has been in free fall for 100 years, uh, you know, it used to be that, you know, every other American was a farmer. and um, But now we're down to under 2% of the population. But for the first time in the last survey, the number of farmers has ticked up. And, there are a lot, and that's people getting into this artisanal and local uh, food economy. It's a very hopeful time in the food movement. I see lots of positive things going on. It's an idea whose time has come. And as energy gets more expensive, I think local food will only look more appealing. 
Well, I wish we had a lot more time to talk, but we don't, so we're up against it. I, I want to just maybe ask a couple of questions here at the end about composting. You talked about that in, in, in the book. You talked about in, in the, the Botany of Desire. When I was a student, I learned how to do it. Very satisfying activity, turning clippings and leftover food into humus, and I'm sure you'll, uh, you can recommend this to our listeners with me. Well, yeah. I mean, composting, actually, the first essay I ever published on uh, was in Harper's Magazine, and it was about compost, and it ended up in my first book, Second Nature. So I've been a big fan of compost ever since I discovered a pile of composted cow manure at my house <laughs> in uh, Connecticut and saw what magic things it did for the uh, for the garden. But composting gets mystified, but it's actually an incredibly easy thing to do. And it is uh, not only a great way to reduce your load on the local landfill, but it's a way to recycle energy, essentially, and grow spectacular crops in your garden. It's become easier to do out here, too. We can either compost ourselves, or now um, the, uh, the city will take away uh, garden and food scraps and uh, compost it for us. So there's more composting going on here, I think, than a lot of places. It, too, is a real win-win, and uh, it is very satisfying, actually, to uh, produce a good pile of compost. I feel very rich when I have a big <laughs> pile of compost. We've been speaking with author Michael Pollan. His book, The Omnivore's Dilemma, A Natural History of Four Meals, is now out in paperback. It's been a pleasure speaking with you, sir. Are you going to be coming back to UC Davis anytime soon? Well, I hope so. I'm sure I'll get there sooner or later. I had a great day out there, and I learned a lot. And I actually did go see the composting operation on the student farm, which is very impressive. So I'm sure I'll have reason to be out there again at some point. But very good talking to you, Doug. All righty. Thanks. Take care. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, we do hope that Mr. Pollan will return to this program in the future. And by way of follow-up, we noted last year on this show that there was a bill in the state Senate, was SB 1056, which, which was backed by the California Farm Bureau and large agribusiness concerns like Monsanto. This would, uh, would have allowed only the state of California to control engineered crops. This is in the wake of several counties, Mendocino, Trinity, Santa Cruz, and Marin, uh, acting to prevent the growing locally of genetically modified seeds. And it turns out that bill was defeated last year. Yay! I'd like to remind you that in the weeks to come, we'll be speaking with our environmental correspondent, Jennifer Davidson of the Sacramento News and Review, on how to live a greener life. We should uh, close this segment by noting the tie-in to uh, Ken Burns' excellent... Uh, uh, special done for the Corporation of Public Broadcasting, PBS, about World War II. In the July-slash-August issue of Sierra Magazine, the publication of the Sierra Club, it was noted that our grandparents can teach us a great deal about saving the world. Noted the article by Mike Davis, Our culture appears hopelessly addicted to fossil fuels, shopping sprees, suburban sprawl, and beef-centered diets. Would Americans ever voluntarily give up their SUVs, McMansions, McDonald's, and lawns? The surprisingly hopeful answer lies in living memory. In the 1940s, Americans simultaneously battled fascism overseas and waste at home. He noted, My parents, their neighbors, and millions of others left cars at home to ride bikes to work. They tore up their front yards to plant cabbage. They recycled toothpaste tubes and cooking grease. They volunteered at daycare centers and USOs and shared their houses and dinners with strangers. They conscientiously attempted to reduce unnecessary consumption and waste. 
The article noted that the World War II home front was the most important and broadly participatory green experiment in U.S. history. I remember my grandfather telling stories about how in San Francisco Bay, where people had uh, tossed away old tires in the years before World War II, they basically went out and retrieved all of them to be recycled for the war effort. In Ken Burns' talk here in Sacramento, he noted that uh, the current administration is trying to finance a war without involving any of us in any sort of sacrifices. Thus, an opportunity is being lost to focus Americans on what could be done to uh, better our environment and just, you know, make the country run better from the environmental standpoint. We could do this, we should do this, and, and bicycles are an important, uh, important part of that. And yes, if you're listening, Paul Dorn, our bicycle correspondent, it's time you came back on the show and talked about, uh, talked about bicycling in California. But let's take a short break. I'm Douglas Everett. You're listening to Radio Parallax. Let's come back and talk a little bit about uh, some local media. And yes, we think we're going to finally get to Heather Klinger in front of a microphone for this program. Stay tuned for that. (laughs) 